You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. So I'm here today with Jessica Klingbaum, a former high-powered, big deal producer up in NYC. <laughs> I know you have a very impressive resume, and I want to give you an opportunity to tell us about that, but thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, it's funny, though, when people talk about the background, because they're always like putting in accolades and things like that. And the funniest thing is, um, I would say like my biggest sort of achievement, I guess, was the fact that I was nominated for an Emmy. But it's really funny because I always say like, whoever said it's an honor just to be nominated is like fucking lying because it sucks if you don't win. But yes, that, that is pretty part- cool, though. That is cool. It, though. It, that it you is. Were nominated. It's cool. Well, it's cool now just as part of like, you know, what I used to do. But I feel like my friends in the industry, like you go to their houses and they have eight sitting on their, you know, on the shelf in their living room. So the fact that you're nominated is like not really a big deal in the industry. It's a big deal to people who don't work in TV. But yes, I was a network news TV producer for 22 years, a little over 22 years. And it was everything you think it would be. And it was an awesome career. And I loved almost every minute of it until probably the last, I'd say maybe six months-ish, maybe six to eight months And at that point, I was kind of like, I just need to get out because if I'm not enjoying this and I'm not loving it every day and jumping out of bed, then I'm over it. And like, I don't want to be that person who's like, you know, annoyed about going to work every day. I think it's a major accomplishment that you only hated it for six to eight months because there's so many people that have jobs for years, decades that they hate. Yes. You know, I think a lot of it is sort of my personality. Like I've always been the person who I really am an eternal optimist. I'm someone who the glass is always half full and I can always find a silver lining. And I've always hated when people bitch and moan about wherever they are in life, whether it's work, whether it's family, whether it's relationships, whatever it is. Like I'm always like, then make a change. I mean, you have control over your own life. So in the past, There had been a few times that I had not loved my job at at, at certain points. I had a high enough level of marketable skills that I was never really concerned about whether or not I could find another job. So there were at least two other times in my career where I left jobs without having another job lined up and very quickly found, you know, even better jobs. So I always feel like if you are unhappy in where you are, for an extended period of time, because you, everybody has a few weeks here or, you know, but like if it's an extended period of time, then I think that you really need to make a change. And I, I am grateful that I have enough inner strength to be willing to do that. I know that that's a really scary prospect for a lot of people and I don't blame them for it, but then shut the hell up. Nobody needs to hear how miserable you are all the time. Yeah. What purpose does it serve anyway to complain? It's not changing. You know, it just drags down morale of everyone around you. It does. But let's, let's go back to the beginning. How did you even get into that field? I mean, did you always know that you wanted to be a producer? 
So it's really funny. I, I think my earliest uh, recollections are I think that when I was in high school, we had done, I, I grew up outside of Philadelphia uh, in South Jersey in a town called Cherry Hill. And I remember in high school, I don't even remember which class it was. Maybe it was English or maybe it was an elective. Um, we had taken like a field trip into Philadelphia and we went to one of the few locally produced talk shows and we sat in the audience and you know we were there i don't even remember what it was called america's talking or something like that and i was completely fascinated that day and i came back and i was like that's what i want to do and that i i knew that, that that that's what i wanted to do i had no i didn't knew no one in tv i had no idea how you get into the business i had no idea what you do to do that i just knew i wanted to be a part of it so when I was um, applying for college, what I really wanted to do was go to NYU and go to their journalism, their broadcast journalism program. Both my parents grew up in New York City and were like, there's no way in hell we're sending you to New York City at your age for college. And they were also like, you, that's what you think you want to do now. But what happens if you go to a really specialized program like that and then you decide that's not what you want to do and then, and then what good is it? So they really were pushing me into a more liberal arts school. Um, so I did, I went, I went to uh, Brandeis University in Boston, outside of Boston, and, I, and they had a journalism minor, which I did. They had very few classes that kind of like related to what I wanted to do. So I did internships when I was in college. I interned at the local affiliates and things like that. And then I graduated and, and I knew I was coming, I knew I needed to be in New York, but I felt that since I hadn't gone to a specialized program, that people that had gone to NYU or had gone to Syracuse to their communications program or schools like that, I felt like they were ahead of me, that I hadn't really learned a lot of the skills that they had probably already learned in school. So I went to graduate school for broadcast journalism at NYU, interned while I was in graduate school for a small local cable network called New York One. And they hired me after my internship. That was my first job in TV. So when you say that you wanted to go into broadcast journalism, did you want to be in front of the camera or did you like all the behind the scenes stuff? There's something about um, being in front of the camera that I'm not really all that comfortable with that always surprises people when I say that because they're like, you're such a natural. But there's something about it that I don't love. Uh, and when I had to do those things in graduate school, that those weren't the parts that I loved the best. But when you're producing... What a lot of people don't know is the producers are really the one who, ones who are generally writing everything, put a, putting everything together. I'm not discrediting reporters and anchors. I mean, it's a tough job to sit there in front of the camera. It's much harder than it looks. But I liked the idea that I, it was my work that was just kind of coming out of their mouths. So I liked having that sort of control behind the scenes and I didn't have to worry about the being in front of the camera part. So in graduate school, I think is kind of when I had decided, like I didn't want to pursue in front of the camera. I wanted to pursue the behind the scenes production stuff. I have a really funny quick story though. When I, um, I worked at CBS News for almost 10 years for the national morning show. And when you, it's uh, at the time it was called, um, the early show, but it was up against Good Morning America and the Today Show and things like that. So it was, that was the format of the show. And if you watch those shows, you know that it's a little bit of a more casual environment amongst the anchors. And there's always times where it's just the four of them and they're just chit-chatting about things going on during the day. And sometimes they'll talk to the producers or the crew yeah. that's in the studio with them. And I remember that I was working on a segment that was coming up like after the next commercial break or something. So I was in the studio putting it together and um, 
Julie Chen, who was one of the anchors at the time, was like, hey, Jess, and talking to me about it because it was her segment. And the camera swung around from facing Julie on me. And my first instinct was to hit the floor. So I totally like ducked out of the way and everybody was cracking up and they were like, we're talking to you. And I had to like <laughs> stand back up and be like, oh yeah. And like answer the questions, whatever it was. It just wasn't for me at the time. Yeah. I think that, do you think that there are people that just, they either really want to be in front of the camera and have the spotlight on them or they just really don't? I think I definitely think there are people who really want to be in the spotlight for sure. Uh, and then I think there are people who maybe could go either way. I mean, that was how I started my career. I did not want to do it. It's been 28 years, 29 years since I started in that business. I'm much more comfortable with it today. If I were doing things, I think I would be a lot better at it and have a lot, a lot greater of a comfort level. I'm not as afraid of it anymore now that I sort of know all the inner workings behind it. So I feel like sometimes people can grow into it, but I really think that generally when people start in front of the camera, like they really want to be in front of the camera. Yeah. Well, and, but you do, sorry, you do seem like a natural. I think that's just because I talk a lot, but you're good <laughs> at talking. I'm really good at talking. That's true. Yes. I mean, do you ever, do you have a really critical eye when you're watching TV? Yes. Yeah. I would imagine you do. It's like and me watching a legal thing. show. Correct. But even if I'm like, if I'm reading emails or anything that I'm reading, like a lot of my job for many years was as an editor, you know, editing the captions that come across the screen when you're watching news and things like that. Like I spot grammatical and spelling errors from a mile away and I have zero patience and no forgiveness uh, like allowable in me. Cause I come from a background where there is no room for error. There's no room for error. You're going live, get your shit right. Yeah. And, and it's, it, it, it's hard for me sometimes. <laughs> well, I mean, total disclosure, like I had to go to the bathroom <laughs> before we started, maybe TMI. And I'm like looking at my clock and I'm like, oh my God, I, I told her noon, like I have to you know, rush now to get to the, the computer because I don't want to waste your time. I want to be on time. And then the thought occurred to me, but God, if you were live, if you were like on NBC going live, like you can't go to the bathroom now, no, like you, you have to go gone. on live. You would have already gone prior to that for sure. Yeah. I will say though, it's very funny that I have a lot of habits in my, in my personal life that I know relate back directly to all of the years working in live TV, but I have to admit punctuality is not my strong suit. So I was never late at like going live on a segment at work, but if you and I are like meeting for lunch and it's 12, like there's a very good chance that I'll end up showing up at 12.10, 12.12. I, I can't get it together. I don't know why. Well, I'll keep that in mind for the future. I'm the same way, by the way. So <laughs> everybody, my friends all tease me about it. But tell me what a producer really does, because I'm not in the industry and my viewers really aren't either. So what is it that a producer is really doing? I'm first going to um, put up a disclaimer, which is that it's totally different than what producers do in the film industry. So if anybody always wondered what a movie producer does, this is not what they do. Um, and it depends to some degree where you work, because it depends on kind of what shows you're working on. I never worked in entertainment TV or reality TV. 
So I can't tell you all of the specifics about what someone is doing working for, you know, the Kardashians or a show like that, or even like Friends or some kind of a sitcom or Law and Order. Like, I have no idea what the specific responsibilities of those producers are. Can tell you what I did. So as a producer for the types of shows that I worked for, which 90% of my career was spent in news and a small portion of my career was spent in syndication um, and for E! Entertainment Television. I'm totally aging myself. Um, so you're basically pitching the stories that you think would be interesting for you know the demographic, the audience that you have on your show. You pitch your stories to your senior producers, your executive producer, whoever your bosses are. And then you're responsible for kind of putting together all of the elements of that story. So if I was gonna say, I really want to do a story on the increase in divorce. And they were like, that's a great idea because we just went through COVID and divorce, you know, all these stories are that divorce is getting so much higher. Okay. So I'm going to decide who are going to be the experts that I'm going to interview for that story. Is it going to be you, Christina? Do I need a woman? Do I need a man? Do I need a specialist in collaborative divorce? Do I need a specialist in custody issues? Do I need to speak to a forensic accountant? I mean, I have to decide, like, what is the angle of the story that I'm taking? Call all of the potential experts that I might be interested in interviewing and do pre-interviews with them on the phone and make sure that they're going to be an A-plus guest because there's nothing worse when you're watching TV than listening to someone boring talking. So um, you really develop over the years an ear for what an A-plus guest is. And I can tell you, I can be on the phone with someone for 30 seconds and be like, this person sucks or that's all I need, We're, you're, you're going live tomorrow. But, but ideally in that pre-interview, gleaning some information about them, like these are the kinds of questions that I might be interested in asking. And this is the kind of information that I, I'm gonna need to get from them. So getting an idea, doing a little bit of research that way, doing whatever actual research you have to do, reading articles, magazine articles, you know, newspapers, whatever, to, to find information in your topic. And then if it's a live segment, then it's putting together a packet for the, for the anchor who's going to actually do the interview for you. So I've done all the behind scenes work. I've tracked you down. I've done the research on the stats of divorce, what people are going through, how long it's taking, the changes that have been made through COVID, um, you know, what your specialty is. And I, and I know that I have three minutes for the interview on camera live. Now I have to call down what do I think are the most important bits of what you and I have already talked about. And then these are the questions I'm going to give my anchor. And these are the questions he's going to ask you or she's going to ask you to get to have elicit from you the information that I want to come out in that segment. I'll find visuals to go along with it. So it might be, you know, video of divorce in a courtroom. It might be video of Zoom divorces. It might be pictures of celebrity couples that are splitting up. Whatever visual elements can kind of make it more exciting for someone watching. So it's not just the talking heads of you and the anchor. And then, um, I mean, that's basically it in a nutshell for live. Like a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. And it also depends on how many segments you have on that you're responsible for per day, per week. Um, but then there are other kinds of segments. So if you're watching the Today Show... I used to work a lot with a, a, a well-known event planner named Colin Cowie, and I was his producer at CBS for a long time. And so he would come on once a month and do some type of an entertaining segment. So for those segments, I already knew it was Colin. Then it was kind of like, what are we going to do in your next segment that's going to be fabulous and fun and really eye-catching and give practical tips that someone can use when they are going to host their Super Bowl party? So then it's like, 
getting the food, hiring a food stylist, deciding what the menu is going to be, deciding what the cocktail is going to be, having everything on set. You're watching the Today Show and you're watching them bake a cake and you're seeing them mix it all and then they open up the oven and they pull out the finished cake. Like you have to break down what are the steps I'm going to show? You know, I have three minutes and 45 seconds to get this whole thing done. So some of them are demo segments where you're actually demonstrating something happening or something being made. And so that's also a lot of work, but in a totally different way um, and things that you have to set up, you know, hours before, days before. It's just very exciting because it's always something different. It's, I never felt like it got rope. Yeah. Well, it's, you must've had assistance though, helping you. Well, when I was the senior producer, sure, my staff. Um, but no, I mean, when you're a producer, so yes, what, you know, you work on a show. When I worked on C- at CBS, I mean, in New York alone, there were probably 40 producers, probably 40 producers, 20 associate producers, you know, 10 production associates or, you know, so yes, but I mean, you don't have your own assistant for all, like you're doing all of the legwork. And frankly, there comes a point at which you're just going to do shit yourself because you don't want to have to delegate certain things. I can say to someone, listen, these are the ingredients I need go to the store, but I, or can you log these tapes? Because I need to pull sound bites from these tapes, from this interview to put into the taped story. But like, I'm not going to have someone else deciding what my clips are going to be. Like I have to, it's my story. I have, I have the vision in my head of what it needs to look like. So So you're really the person that is coming up with all of the content for the show. Correct. So, so if you work on a show where there are multiple producers and multiple segments throughout the show, generally each segment is produced by someone else. When you're running the show, you're overseeing everything. So you're putting the rundown together and you're saying, I want a segment today on the building collapse in Miami. I want the mayor. If I can't get the mayor, I want the commissioner. I need an eyewitness. I need a resident of the building. And then your producers are like off and running to book the guests that need to represent the segment that you have like the vision to see. And that's got to be a lot of stress, though, for a daily show like that, because it's not like it's not a weekly show. So you have to come up with new, fresh content every day, every day, every hour, every minute. And so how far ahead were you? Were you a few weeks ahead? Really good question. So if you're doing a segment again, like a little bit depends on the show. If you're working for a live news show, you're always going to have to have the latest news. So you can't, how far ahead are you? A couple of hours because you know what I mean? You need to know what's going on. And if, and you may have an entire show locked and loaded and then a building collapses and now that blows out your whole show. And now your whole show is going to be something different. You have three minutes to air. Like, it changes on a dime. But if you're doing segments, like, you know, you're going to do a follow-up segment on the building in Miami every day for a week, you can start booking out for that. And if you're doing a segment like on a show that's a a fluffier segment, like an entertain, put a, how to throw a Super Bowl party segment, I mean, that can be booked a month in advance. I would say I was usually, for me personally, anywhere from two days to a month, depending on what it was. Again, it's like, you know, there are certain things coming down the, down the line. Like, you know, it's going to be July 4th and you're going to have to do something around that. You know, there's going to be Valentine's day and you're going to have to do something about that. So there are some things that, that, 
obviously you can book in advance, but the top of the show, the breaking news, you are booking that the day before, the night before. Yeah. So what is the typical demographic for the morning news? I mean, I think it may be different today than what it yeah. was back in the day. I mean, I think that that the ideal demo for the morning news was probably like 25 to 50 or 55. I mean, like the sweet spot of the demo is like 18 to 35 or something like that. But I mean, I don't know that a lot of 18 year olds, even at that time that were watching morning TV. So I'm going to say it was people who were already like had jobs were probably out of school, had jobs, were getting dressed and getting ready for work in the morning and like flip on the TV to kind of just that see was me. Right, right. Exactly. Um, today, I don't even know that people, I think it's, I think it's probably a lot older than that. I don't know. Um, I know a lot of younger generation who are just watching. First of all, I know a lot of people don't even have TVs anymore. You know, they're, we're watching stuff on our computers all the time and just, you know, logging on to a website in the morning and getting all of their daily news rather than watching it, um, on, you know, on the today show. So, but I would say the demographic was, was probably somewhere in there, like, you know, twenties to fifties. Because you have to know what, what, content do I have to put out there so that these people want to see it? Because our ratings and things like that, does that fall on you as the producer? Uh, if you are a producer of a show that has tons of producers and there are, then there's a level of senior producers and then there's an executive producer. No, the rate, the buck stops with the, with the person at the top. So when I ran my own shows, yeah, the ratings were my problem. But when I was producing segments, the ratings itself weren't so much my problem. But it was whoever was accepting my pitches and deciding, yes, let's we go ahead with that. Because then if the ratings dropped during that segment, as much as it sucked for me, like somebody authorized that segment. You know what I mean? So you learn as you go along, like what people are liking and what people aren't liking. You, you can see the ratings. Um, but I, it's generally whoever's in charge. But isn't there um, sort of this um, sentiment that the morning news is just very different than the nightly news? A hundred percent, because the morning news on a show like the Today Show, you've got, I think now it's th still three hours, but, let, but in my day, it was two hours. So you've got the first hour, which was like hard news. You're not really doing a how to throw a Super Bowl party at 730 in the morning on a Tuesday. But the second hour was like the lighter hour, the fluffier hour. That's when they would do their concerts out front. You know, that's when you would have on actors promoting their movies and things like that. Um, so it, it really does depend. It depends on the time of the segments. I mean, you always knew like there, there's something to be said for like, you know, having a segment in the first half hour of the show. Like that's a lot of responsibility. And so I worked in that for a while um, and there were certain stories that you might find yourself working on and covering for extended periods of time. So anytime they're at the top of the show, like that's you. And like, there's some pride in that. I, dating myself yet again, you may recall years ago, there was a huge story out of Miami of a little boy from Cuba whose mother had Elian Gonzalez, his mother yes. had taken him from Cuba and she died along the way. His father was still in Cuba. His cousins were in Miami and there was a huge fight 
about who should get to keep him. I happened to be in Miami doing a profile, feature profile on a music producer who was nominated for a Grammy for like one of Ricky Martin's songs. But I was there in Miami. So my bosses were like, hey, listen, we need you to go and check out what's going on over here. So I, that then became my story and my story for the network. Like I was producing stories for CBS evening news. I was producing stories like the hard news stories for the early show. I was at that house at 5.30 in the morning and I was there through the evening news, like camped out front with all of the press that was going on. So there was definitely an element of like, you got chops if you're getting assignments to be doing at the top of the show that are like the hard news. Um, and then you get back and you're doing like, you're like, here's my feature story on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. guy. It's just, it's, it's very funny, but um, there generally were like certain producers who are kind of the go-to top of the hour producers. And then there were certain producers who were sort of the go-to second hour producers. And then there were people who kind of, you know, moved back and forth. What but, were you? Uh, in the very beginning, I, I worked more on the top of the show, I think, because I had come from, um, no, I guess it didn't matter. I didn't come straight from New York one. I think it was more like when you're sort of training, the, it's weird. The, the hard news stories in a way were a lot easier to do than some of the featurey things because there were fewer elements. You could only work with what you could work with. If you're doing something on a building collapse, you've got the visuals of the building. You have some kind of a city representative who's going to be your interview. Um, you know, that's really kind of it. And then you have to sort of know what the latest is, is in, in that story, but it's a pretty cut and dry direct story. So in the beginning, I think that is a good place to start. That's where I had started when, when I was at CBS, but I had come from several years of working for shows on E! Entertainment Television about fashion and um, modeling and featurey things like that. And so I was very comfortable and used to that, which required not more work, um, but probably a little less stressful. It's not brain surgery to do a story on Fashion Week in New York City, um, but a lot of legwork and, and just a lot of, you know, running around. Um, that's the other thing I felt like for live news segments where you're producing them out of the studio, like you don't really have to go anywhere to do, you know, unless when we were working on something like 9-11, obviously we were down at the scene. Um, but I, I, I don't, I, it's, it's funny. I'm not going to say one is necessarily easier than the other. When you're producing a live concert with, you know, um, I'm forgetting the group that Beyonce was in before she was solo. Destiny's Child. You know, that's a lot of work to produce a live concert on the plaza in front of the show. So there's a way there was a woman, Kathy Black, who was mostly produced the concerts. Like she had a shit ton of work going on. Um, that's a hard, hard thing to do. So, but you know, if you really love it, then there are women, women and men who love, 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 live and breathe for breaking news. And so that, them going out and booking the families of people who died in a plane crash, they're great at it because that's, they thrive on that. I, I, I was not great at booking the families that on TWA flight 800, I was out there at Smithtown and at the airport. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Like yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not a hard news booker. It's that's not my forte. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I, every once in a while I'll see on the news, you know, some terrible accident just happened and they somehow found the victim's mom. It is a gift. They're at her front door. She's crying. And you're like, who is that person? Who did that? Well, yeah, yeah. But it needed to be done. Yeah. And there's a lot of that whole like journalists are vultures and, but, and the, it's really competitive booking. I mean, I, there was a story I covered because I'm from Cherry Hill. Um, it, it, it was disgustingly tragic. One of the rabbis from Cherry Hill who I knew and I knew his, I went to school with his kids. It was a small town. There were only a few synagogues. Everybody knew everybody. And this rabbi ended up um, uh, being found guilty for having killed his wife. And in a very violent way, he wasn't, it wasn't by his own hands, but he had hired someone to do it. Um, And I was assigned that story because I was from Cherry Hill and I knew the family, not well, but I mean, I knew who they were. And so I was down there in Philadelphia in that courtroom during that trial, writing letters to him, to the rabbi to try to get him to be on our show because Every network was writing letters to him to try to get him to be on their show. Barbara Walters won. He was on 2020. We lost. Um, It ended up to actually, the interesting thing was it ended up not even being a great story on 2020. And I remember they did not dedicate the whole hour to it. And so, and he was a real narcissist. And I, and I, I was kind of glad in the end that like, they didn't even give him the full hour because yeah, you know, I'm sure he I'm sure that's what he wanted. Um, but I was there. I had to be reaching out to the son who was my age, who I'd gone to high school with and reaching out to the daughter and like the younger son. And the kids were like some of them believed the dad. Some of them didn't believe the dad. I mean, it was a terribly tragic, awful situation. And you but someone is going to talk to the kids. I mean, you want it, you hear a story like that. You need to hear like what happened. And I don't know. I mean, it's a societal thing, I guess. So it was, it, it sucks being on that end of it when everyone's like, you're disgusting that you're trying to call the family, but you're also kind of like, yeah, but it's my job. And everybody else is calling the family too. Doesn't necessarily make it right. But until they do the interview, you gotta, you gotta try to book them. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because you want to set yourself apart from the other channels, right? The other networks. But at the same time, if something big happens, everybody wants to do the same thing and you can't be the one not doing it because then people are just going to flip over to a different channel. So how do you do the same thing as everyone else, but somehow make it original? Well, a lot of times for stories like that, when like, I'm sure whatever agreement ABC came to with Rabbi Newlander, it was an exclusive agreement. So it's irrelevant now. Nobody else is doing it. He, they got the interview with him. So everybody could have covered it as like a quick 45-second read in the evening news that like the, the verdict came down and he was found guilty and blah, 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 and like a quick recap of the story. But no one's going to spend a lot of time on one of their magazine shows doing the segment without having the one, the, the guy when someone else has the guy. So yeah. I think it's really more about when you're trying to book the guest, what can you do to um, display your empathy or, um, you know, character 
to make that person feel like they want to talk to you and to your anchor versus that network and that anchor. I mean, listen, now Oprah's in, in, not just now, but right, Oprah's in the game. Yeah. If you love Oprah, it doesn't matter if you're being wooed by, you know, Diane Sawyer. You're going to be like, I want to talk to Oprah. So that's who I'm going with. And if you hate Barbara Walters, ABC is not getting the interview. There's only so much you can work with to a certain degree. It's like, if they don't like your talent, you're out. If they have a beef against your network, you're out. If they are obsessed with the talent somewhere else, you're out. So you kind of, you know, then it just comes down to being able to kind of work your way to their heart and make them feel like they're going to be heard and that they're going to be given a fair interview and they're going, it's going to be, um, X amount long or how much airtime are you going to give them? Um, and really like being able to convince them that your show, your network, you know, the time that you're going to give them is going to be better than what anyone else is going to give them because this is who you work with and this is how they're going to treat them during the interview, good or bad. I mean, you could be trying to woo Michael Phelps and that's not, there's nothing bad about, that's an amazing interview to get. But it's like, you know, if he wants to talk to Bryant Gumble because Bryant hosts real sports, he's going to go with Bryant. He's yeah. not going to go with Diane, you know? So um, it's, it's very hard, I think, in the booking process to stand out. And I think that there are, super bookers out there who can book the Pope. They, they can, you give them a name, that person will be on your air. And it's incredible. And it's a skill that I think can't always be learned. Do they just have an incredible Rolodex? I'm dating myself saying Rolodex, but they, they do, but I think that that's only good to a certain extent because once you get to whoever it is that you want to be doing the interview with, or whether it's their representative or whatever, now it's you, you know, with your elevator pitch on what it is that you're going to be able to offer them and developing relationships so that they feel that they can trust you over time. You're not reaching out to someone once. Listen, I may call you to do a divorce story and we may have a quick phone conversation and you're like, sure, I'll come on your show tomorrow. That's great. But you're trying to book Michael Phelps. That's a booking that's going to take potentially a few months to get. So you are going to have to develop relationships with all of the key people that you need to in order to actually lock that interview in. And listen, I guess to some extent, it's like people who are amazing networkers and schmoozers. It's like a sales job. It's like a sales job. Some people Building relationships. That. That's yeah. right. That's right. And some people can walk into a room of strangers at a networking event and walk out with like a million phone numbers and job interviews and things like that. And some people can walk into an event like that and not get one business card and not really be able to speak to anybody about it. So you either have it or you don't. Yeah, there is somebody that I know who um, I I hate to call her an interior decorator because that's really not what she does. She's more of like a builder. Um, but it's in terms of the aesthetics, that's what she focuses on. And I have never seen anybody work a room the way she does. I went to an event for women in construction with her and I was just blown away. I was like, I need to be more like her. 
We all need to be more like her. But it really is. It really is a skill. I think it's an inherent skill. Some people have it. Some people don't. We used to say in TV in general, to work in TV, regardless of whether or not you're a newsbooker, you, you get it or you don't get it. And if you really don't get it, you're not going to be able to keep a job in TV. Yeah, and you probably just won't stay there. You, you won't be able to stay there. There are certain tasks that you can learn. And there are skills, whether it's editing or, you know, learning how to use the computer program to enter your scripts in and do things like that, like cut a clip. You can learn those things. But if you don't get the idea of what's happening every day in a, in a newsroom for a live show, you, if you don't get it, you don't get it. And you're not going to last. Yeah. I would imagine there's a revolving door. Um, for the newbies. I don't know that I felt like there was so much of a revolving door. I think that fortunately for the most part, the people doing the interviewing were able to kind of spot it. I think there are certain things that you can tell when you meet with a person and when you talk to a person, whether they can get it. I do remember though, for one of the shows that I was running um, when I had hired the staff, we got to a point where we were just getting too close to air in pre-production. And I was like, I just got to hire the next couple of people that come through the door. And, and so there were a couple of people that uh, like at the uh, production assistant level that didn't end up working out, but there was also a girl that was getting really frazzled. Um, and after maybe a week or two weeks, she tried to quit and I knew she had it and I would not accept her resignation. And I was like, you're not leaving. I, I was like, I will do whatever I need to do to help you get there but you're staying here and you're doing the job and um, we're very close today. And, but it really, I was like, I understand why you're getting overwhelmed, but let's break it down. And what can I do to help you so that you don't feel that way as we're like getting closer to air, but you have what it takes. So please like, let's just work together so that you can do it. Um, so I love that. That's a great example of women supporting women that I like to see. I let a couple other go others go. I'm not going to lie. Um, but I, I feel like when you, when you have it, you have it. And, and for me, one of the things when it came to hiring skill set is hugely important. There's no question, but there were certain things that I was willing to overlook if someone didn't have experience doing X, Y, or Z that I knew that we could teach them. For me, a lot of it was, what's their personality like? Are they going to fit in with the rest of the group? I need, when you're running a live show and you come in every morning and you're working towards, you know, going live at five, at four o'clock, if there's shit that's not done yet, you need all hands on deck. And I don't want to work with a staff who's like, my segment's done. I, I, I'm going to go, you know, have a smoke and I'll meet you in the control room. I want a staff who's, who's like, my segment's done. Who needs help? What can I do for anybody else right now? What do you need that's not done for yours? It probably should be like that in every industry, but I don't know that every, every industry needs that. I don't know that every industry has that sense of urgency and those types of deadlines. But one of the things that I pride myself on the most was that specific show where the girl tried to quit and I didn't let her. I believe we had nine people on, on our staff. And I would say eight of them 
are still so close today that they travel internationally together on trips. They do weekends together. They're out together all the time in the city. They're all a lot younger than I am, but it reminds me of the camaraderie that I had when I was at CBS. And it's one of like the biggest points of pride for me in my career. Like I had a very specific agenda when I was hiring for that show. And it represents to me 10 years later that I did exactly what I had set out to do that they all worked together so well, the personalities jived so well that they're actually all really good friends, even though the show went off the air a number of years ago and they work in different places. That's a, that is a skill. I'm, a lot of people aren't good at hiring and well, leap firing out of it, but a lot of people aren't good at, you know, picking the people for the team. Yeah. And sometimes you get thrown together on a team with people that you don't know and you don't jive with, and then it just sucks. And there's I was able on that specific show, I was able to start new. I had no staff. It was just me. And I had these positions to fill and I filled them. And it was like a family. What, did you have to fire people too? Uh, yeah, that was not easy. That was not easy. Um, you know, firing someone is not easy. No, it's not. Many, many months of records of poor performance and examples of issues in order to, um, you know, for HR to agree to go ahead and do it where there's not going to be backlash against the company or whatever the case may be. Um, it's really difficult to fire someone. So there are times for anyone out there who's listening, who works at a job where you think that you have dead weight on, uh, you know, amongst your colleagues, it's not necessarily that your bosses don't realize it. It's that the, the company may not be letting them get rid of that person for legal reasons. And sometimes you just got to suck it up and you just got to work with what you have. And it, sucks because that's when I think morale goes down amongst the rest of the group. Like, why does that person only have to do that little bit of work? And we're all over here busting our asses and that person gets away with it. Yeah. I don't have an answer for that, but I can say that firing people, it was not easy. And a couple of people that I was able to get rid of took a long time and I felt really bad about it, but I was like, look, I have no room to have dead weight here. Like you're wanting me to put a show on the air every day and I have eight producers and I really only have seven. Like I can't, I need the eighth person to be working. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a real problem. Now, what about the talent? Did you get to pick them too or? No. I did not. No say. No, 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 no say. The old, no, never. So let's, let's just use a hypothetical, like, like Megan Kelly for some reason comes to mind. Who's the one deciding what topics she's talking about? Does she get to do that or were her producers doing that? That's a combination. So I worked with Megyn Kelly, one of my first jobs at Fox when I was running America's election headquarters. And it was Megyn Kelly and Bill Hemmer were my talent on that show. So it was a news show. It was a political based news show. It was during the first Obama campaign. The stories were pretty... I'm not going to say self-explanatory, but it's like, you know, you knew some of the stories you were going to do every day. Like, where was Obama today? You know, where's Bush today? Uh, you know, what's the big topic of the day? And, 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 and what's the new angle that we can do on that, whatever it is. Um, so some of the things were just kind of like, obviously, this is what we're going to do. And, 
And there are, when you work at Fox, there are a lot of like at, at any network, there are paid contributors, paid political consultants by the network that are like your go-to people to be giving commentary on, you know, different types of things. So some of the segments are like, okay, well, this is the topic we're going to do because this is where Obama is today. And these are the guests that we're going to have because these are the Republican and the Democratic paid political consultants from Fox. And so here's who we're going to use for that. that. Then there are probably a couple of stories where it's like, okay, look, we have three segments left and we have like, these are eight choices that we could do for those segments. And so for sure, Megan would weigh in, like, I really want to cover this today. And Bill would be like, I really want to do this today. And so they definitely have a lot of say. I was never, I don't think I was ever in a situation where it was like, okay, well, this is going to be one of the topics. And one of the anchors is like, I, we're not doing that topic, but they may not necessarily agree with the angle, but then, but then they can, as the anchor in their questioning during the segment, push it however they want it to go. Um, but your talent definitely has a say in what the stories are going to be and can and can say, I, I really want us to do this story today. As the producer, you're really kind of more deciding like where in the show that's going to go. If you have two anchors, who's going to get to do which segment? Okay, well, you interviewed Obama the last time we had him on. So you're going to get the Obama interview this time or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Now, what if you have a um, a talent, someone whose talent, who's sort of um, notorious for being a bit inflammatory, saying things that are inflammatory? I, I will be happy to say that I actually never worked with a talent like that. And I and I think it's possible that over time, when I was working with Megan, I mean, she, I, she was still younger at the network. It was before she became like the powerhouse that she became and then had her own show and then was very influential and then went over to NBC. So there may have been preconceived notions about her from people as she moved up the ladder. Although I will say she had a producer at Fox who moved with her through Fox. So clearly they had a very like symbiotic working relationship and really like had each other's backs. And so, um, but I... It, during my career with the talent that I worked with directly at the times that I was working on my shows, I never worked with anyone who was really inflammatory. I never worked for Sean Hannity. I never worked for Bill O'Reilly. And I didn't work for Megan when she was on the Today Show and made the comments that she made. And I didn't work for Megan's primetime show where she started becoming like a huge nationally recognized influential figure that got her to be one of the moderators of the debate. I, I didn't, that's not when I was working with her. So um, I worked on, I were, I, I, there was a show that I launched at Fox called the five and it was five different hosts. And like, yeah, I mean, part of the point was it was a round table and they were trying to kind of like for shock value saying things like that. But um, it was never like the kind of stuff that, you know, Tucker Carlson would say, or, um, nothing that was egregiously racist or inflammatory to the point where it was like, oh my God. Like we have to cut to commercial right now. Yeah. Did you recognize Megyn Kelly as someone that was up and coming? Like, would you have predicted what she ended up being? The only re... I have to be neutral on it because honestly, that was my first job at Fox. And I worked with her on a show. I didn't, I didn't know who she was when I came in. I only knew who Bill was because he also hosted America's Newsroom at the time, 
which was like one of their bigger morning shows. Um, so, and I knew who Megan was cause she had been hosting that show, but I had, to, I, I literally worked with her for probably three months. Um, and then I watched her trajectory at the network, but I, I can't say from the, the, the time that I worked with her that I knew enough about the network as a whole to be able to determine like what they were looking for and where she would have gone. But I will say like, she was always very strong-willed, very strong-minded. She doesn't take any shit. Um, she definitely had the chops for sure. So I wasn't surprised that she went where she went. I was more surprised to be perfectly honest that she left her perch at Fox. I wasn't surprised that she left after all the stories that came out about, about um, Roger, but yeah. I was surprised that she left where she was and then went to morning TV at NBC. I personally, from what I did know about her, that never seemed like a good fit for me. I didn't understand, I didn't understand who made that decision. I didn't understand why she went along with that decision. She's not Katie Couric. I think that she was a very strong, hard-nosed news person and respected in that arena to then all of a sudden have to be doing baking segments. It didn't, it didn't jive. Yeah. I no, I, I have to say, I mean, I'm certainly not an industry person, but when I saw that change, I didn't understand it either. I was like, okay, I guess it's a big deal to be at the Today Show. It is. But, but I think you have to be really soft and warm and fuzzy. And I think maybe they were trying to make her into something else. I just didn't really understand it. I thought she had like, I don't know that they wanted her obviously as a primetime news person. So I don't know what job opportunities were in front of her. I, I didn't I obviously at the time know the backstory of her experience with Roger Ailes at Fox. So I didn't know she was needed to get out so badly. It just seemed like such a random, weird, out of nowhere um, decision. I Yeah, I, I agree. It, it wasn't the best fit. And, yeah. and I like her. So I'd love to see her again somewhere. I don't know if she's that's going to happen on YouTube. I believe she's like trying to start. I don't want to say she's starting her own network, but I mean, I think pretty sure she has a podcast and she's doing stuff on YouTube and I think she's got an audience. I've seen her on YouTube. Yeah. And, and I think YouTube is, I mean, YouTube has been around a while now, but having your own show on YouTube is becoming definitely more powerful than it used to be. Yes. And I have to ask you when you were at Fox, I mean, we all know now what was going on at Fox, but at the time you were there, did you see any of that? Like, what was the culture like there? I will say I saw none of it. And I've had so many conversations with people after the fact, like, uh, how did I have my head in the sand like that? I think that I really just focused on my own stuff. Um, I, I don't think I was, I mean, I was there in, I was there and I left and then I went back and I left and I went back and and so I was there probably like a total of eight years, but like a little bit at the, at the news channel and a little bit at the business network. And I knew the power players, the vice presidents and stuff like that, that I had good relationships with, but I didn't have a long history or background with a lot of the other showrunners and things like that. So I didn't, I don't know how I missed it all. Maybe I was just lucky that I, I've been told that I always gave off a little bit of a don't fuck with me attitude. 
not probably to my bosses in terms of what they wanted me to perform for the show, but I never really got hit on at work. I never was in any of those situations. And I was told that there was some kind of a vibe that I was giving out. And I guess that's why I wasn't hit on by different people over the course of my career. So maybe my staff also was protected somehow. Um, Whatever the case may be, I didn't see it. I had heard random rumors about people in the building who were inappropriately hooking up with, uh, you know, underlings and things like that. Um, I'm not sure that that differs that much from any company anywhere. So, and I didn't realize that it was um, such a, a pervasive problem at the network. What I also did know was that I'd heard rumblings about um, Roger Ailes's paranoia about things. And I knew enough that the inner PR machine at Fox would go to any lengths to throw anybody under the bus and protect the network. And it happened to me fairly early on. There was a show that I was running that one of my segment producers uh, created a banner on the screen that then was interpreted as, as racist and offensive to Michelle Obama. And it wasn't meant to be, and it actually was a play off of a movie that was out at the time. However, it doesn't matter. If someone perceives it to be racist, then it became that way. And this is many years, this was again during the first Obama campaign. So long before Black Lives Matter and, and, and the, um, you know, awareness that's going on in our, in our society today. And I was the showrunner and I was new and I hadn't seen it. However, I, it was my show. So I, it, it came, the buck stops with me. So it came down to be my problem and I was asked directly who was the person on my staff who had, who had created it. And I basically said, it doesn't matter because I, it's my show. So if any, like, if there's going to be any consequences for it, they should be mine. Not, I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus for it. There weren't any consequences to me at the time. I stayed on the show. I was offered uh, to, to stay on the show Full-time, I had come in as a replacement for someone who was on maternity leave. And then they offered me the job full-time as staff. Um, But I chose to leave and go to a different network at the time. This is about three months after the fact. I chose to go to another network at the time because I didn't know what was going to be in my time slot after the election was over. And the election was kind of almost over at that point. And I didn't really feel comfortable taking a job to run a show that I didn't know what the show was going to be. So I left. And again, this is... Months after the the uh, banner had happened, and when I left, stories came out in the media that Fox had fired me because of that banner. And I remember going into the bosses like, "What the hell is this? We both know that I was not fired." And I had actually had like a rave written review from the vice president of the network that I had already submitted to the new network that I was going to. And I'm like, this is such bullshit. So I think it's like Fox always wanted to save face. And so they they just were, you know, trying to create publicity wherever they could. So I knew that it was like not a nice place. I don't know how else to say that. Backbiting. Um, like, right. But, but, the, but the ironic thing, and my agent had to like, you know, 
like call the New Yorker. Like I was like, it was not a joke. Like my name was out in the public realm as the person who was responsible for this and who had created it and gotten fired for it. And I was mentioned by Jake Tapper on ABC and I was written about in the New Yorker and there were different things. And I remember my agent had to call the New Yorker and they had to print a retraction in the magazine. Like it was a big deal for me. And then I went to this other network that I hated and I had signed a three-year contract, but I left after three months and I called Fox, the vice president of Fox, one of the vice presidents, the last day of this other network, which was a Friday. And I said, I just want to let you know I'm leaving. And she was like, why don't you come in on Monday and we'll talk. And they hired me back to run a different show and they kept hiring. And then I left again voluntarily like eight months later because I got a job in syndication that I thought was my dream job. And then that show got canceled and I called Fox and let them know that that show was canceled and they brought me back and I launched a new show for them. So like, don't print stories that you fired me because I did something wrong when you didn't fire me and you then went ahead and hired me back two more times to run stuff and launch stuff for your network. It was yeah. me. It was me. Yeah. Spirited. Um, well, that's sort of the reputation that the industry has, at least to an outsider like me, that it's backbiting and, you know, every yeah. man for himself. Yeah. I didn't feel like that at other places. And I felt like at Fox, it was the kind of place where you might send an email asking about something or saying something, but if it was to like, you know, one of the executives, they wouldn't email you back. They would call you because they didn't want anything in writing. It just yeah. was interesting. It was like not, you knew there was something a little shady, but I, the stories that came out, I left Fox for the last time uh, in October, about eight months before all the Roger Ailes shit hit the fan. And I remember reading all that stuff and like, <gasps> where was I? Like, yeah, I where was that all happening? I don't know. I don't know. So was- Roger never asked you to spin. I guess he wouldn't because you weren't going on camera. <laughs> right, right, right. But I was in a couple of meetings with Roger and other people. I was never in a meeting with him alone, but I was in a couple of meetings with him with other people for like, you know, shows that I was working on. And I, I mean, I never, I never saw any of that. You wouldn't know, right? Did you watch Bombshell? I did. I guess you can't speak to any of that though. You kind of answered the question already. The most surprising thing to me perfectly, to be, to be perfectly honest about Bombshell was the fact that they cast Nicole Kidman as Gretchen Carlson. Gretchen Carlson is like five foot one. So the whole time I was watching the movie, I was like, I don't buy it. Well, didn't I, they all have, um, you know, makeup and uh, one of them at yeah, least had someone two feet shorter. But yeah, well, they can sort of, you know, camera angles and whatnot. No, it that. did not work. She, it did not work. Well, you, because you knew her. I knew them. Yeah. But Megan Kelly, um, Char- I'm sorry, Charlize Theron in that movie playing Megan Kelly um, looked exactly like her. Like I totally bought into her character and it was very interesting to me watching the movie. Like I knew all the players. So that was very interesting to me. Um, I didn't love the movie overall. Um, but having nothing to do with the fact even that I worked there, maybe it is cause I didn't buy the whole Gretchen Carlson character. I a hundred percent believe Gretchen Carlson. I believed before the evidence came out that there was that, that they knew she had audio and video. I believed it from the get go. As soon as I read the story the day that it broke, I believed that what she was saying was true. I didn't believe Nicole Kidman as her character. However, 
there was a series on Showtime called The Loudest Voice. Oh, and Russell Crowe played Roger Ailes. It was like a seven-part Showtime series. That was crazy. All right, I got to watch that because I wasn't totally impressed with Bombshell. I didn't even no. finish watching it. You should watch The Loudest Voice. It is crazy. And what I will say, not having known Roger Ailes personally, is that the man was a broadcasting genius, but he clearly was a sicko. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. I mean, no getting around it. But but uh, I thought the loudest voice was a lot of insight that I had not known prior. I'm going to watch that. And it was disappointing to me on a personal level because there were executives that I knew that I actually had really nice relationships with that I enjoyed working with and respected when I was there. And then seeing what presumably was their part in all of that stuff was, was personally disappointing to me. Yeah. Well, you're not there anymore. So can you tell us what, you know, how did your career evolve to the point that you decided you didn't want to be there anymore? I, well, I was at the business network and I was never like a huge fan of business news, but I had gone over there initially to launch a show because I had met uh, the anchor of the show and I really liked her. And I was like, oh my God, I would love to work with her. And then from there, I worked on a different show and then I worked on a different show. And then I got to a point where I was working on a show that I didn't love the show, but I really didn't like the guy that I was working with and not my talent. But, but the executive producer of the show, I was a senior. And um, I felt like, I, I found out later that there was a guy on the staff before I got there who the, who the EP was wanting this guy to have the senior job. And I was at a different show and I didn't know that. And they, the powers that be came to me and said, we'd like to put you into this spot. And I think the EP thought I somehow usurped this other guy's job. So from the minute I got onto this show, this guy was a total asshole to me and really disrespectful and really patronizing and condescending. And it was affecting the way I could do my job, which was really preventing me to do it. And he was deliberately like blocking me from doing certain things and then blaming them on me. And I saw the pattern. And so I went to HR and I was like, this is a boys club over here and I don't want to have a part of it. And actually I should have had an inkling to what was going to be coming down the pike because I said, I'd been at the network already now for almost eight years or a little over eight years in total at the shows. And I had had, a, I, until that time, I had had a great track record with them. They kept, you know, bringing me in to launch new stuff for them. And, um, and when I went to HR and said, I am not happy in this job, I've never gone to them before and said that I wasn't happy in a job. I'm unhappy in this job and I feel like this is what he's doing and he's manipulating my position here and my authority here. And it's like a boys club because he's going behind my back and giving assignments to people that are lower than me that are guys and then blaming me that I'm not doing it as the senior producer. I expected them to be like, what can we do for you? And the first words out of their mouth were, how's this as a severance? Wow. <laughs> wow. That's weird. It was weird. And my best friend is the vice president of an HR for a company, a huge company out in LA. And I called her. I, I had gone over the, the email that I'd written to HR with her before I sent it. And then I called her after that meeting I had said to her, I have a feeling that if I don't go into them, he's, he's 
keeping a file on me and it's all bullshit. And so when I went to her, I called her after that meeting and she said, you're a hundred percent right. He's definitely been keeping a file. Um, and there's stuff going on. And if this is what they're offering you as severance, then you need to go back and tell them that this is what you want instead. And I was like, I want to keep my job. I didn't want to keep that job. I wanted to move back to the other network. And at the time there wasn't an opening for um, a showrunner. And so then I was like, I'm just out of here. Like they were, they floated a couple of other shows at that network in front of me. And I was like, I, I don't, these are not the people that I want to work with. I, I don't want to be here anymore. Um, so I negotiated a settlement. I left. And was that when, was that the end for you? That was, that was the end for me. Like I had already been miserable in this job. I knew that I had to leave. I'd started interviewing elsewhere and they didn't have like an equivalent position for me that I would have been happy in. So I agreed on an exit package, signed a confidentiality agreement and left and was so glad that I left because then, like I said, the following summer, all that shit hit the fan. And then it all became really clear to me. They must've been having a lot of complaints from women, obviously. And they were trying to get rid of anybody who was saying anything. And even though I never said anything before, and it was nothing like sexual assault or you were obviously a comfortable speaking up for yourself. I was comfortable enough speaking up for myself to say, I've done a damn good job for you guys all these years. And this guy's fucking with me and I'm not going to have it. Yeah. They were trying to silence you. Yes. They want the wallflowers. And after I heard, and then, and then, and then a while later, maybe a year or two later, I actually heard there was an investigation into that specific guy that I couldn't stand. And I remember getting another, I remember asking, reaching out to Fox and asking for a copy of my exit uh, agreement and had it reviewed to find out if I spoke out, was I at risk for whatever, since, since I had signed the agreement and, uh, and had discussion as to whether or not that was something that I felt that I should do. And in the end, I felt like just my personality. I'm like, I I don't want to go back and dredge old baggage. It wasn't anything impropriety. Like there was no impropriety. I was never, you know, sexually approached or anything like that. He was just a dick. And I was like, I don't need to go down that road to like say what a dick he is. So evidently he subsequently left as well. So also you had mentioned that you thought something was your dream job. What, what's your dream job now? Oh God. Well, now that I'm launching X experts with my best friend, honestly, I feel like in a lot of ways, that's my dream job because I'm getting to use a lot of like the media skills that I honed over a 20 plus year career. Um, combined with a subject matter that I'm really passionate about, that I've experienced myself personally, and that I know that I have information and resources that can help other people to get through it. I've been through it twice. Um, And so I really feel like what we're doing now is like, it it is kind of a dream. And I hope that it becomes everything that we hope that it's going to become. What do you have like an idea in the back of your mind? That's like your pie in the sky vision. There are pie in the sky vision for X experts. And I ha- let's, let's date ourselves one more time. Um, when I was having my kids years ago, there was a website. I don't even know if it still exists. It may, but my kids are teenagers. It was called babycenter.com. 
And everybody would go to babycenter.com for anything that had to do with anything pregnancy or baby related, or even like for the first few years after you had a baby. Like if you wanted to know, it was almost like the what to expect when you're expecting, but online. And then it could be like, why am I nauseous after I eat pickles? You know, how big is my baby today? What's the baby equipment that I should need? What should I register for? What do I do if my kid has colic? What do I do if my baby's jaundiced? What should I expect during the delivery? Like literally anything baby related. We want xexperts.com to be the go-to platform for anybody who's thinking anything that has to do with anything divorce. So whether someone's thinking about, are they going to get divorced or they're, or they're considering getting divorced or they have decided they're getting divorced and they don't know what to do or they're in the midst of their process and they need more information about any, whether it's custody or you know finances or what to do with your stuff. Or even now they've gotten divorced and now what? You know, dating, nutrition, fashion stuff, like anything that is going to go to now, you're going to be starting fresh. Our goal and dream is that XXworks is going to be the go-to hub for anybody who has any kind of thoughts about divorce and that it'll be the first place that anybody would recommend to someone else. Oh my God, I'm so sorry to hear you're getting divorced or I'm so glad to hear that you're getting divorced. Have you checked out xexperts.com? We wanna be out there as spokespeople. You know, when you are watching the Today Show and you're seeing segments about what to do on divorce, we wanna be the people that are like, we've been there, we've lived it, so we get it. And this is what you can do. And this is a great way to handle it because there is a lot of information out there by industry experts like yourself but we think that that the sense of community of knowing that there are people who've been down that road, not as initially as experts, and who've figured out how to navigate it and who've learned all the things that you don't know you need to know, that's where we come in. So I would love, we have a podcast. I would love us to write a book. I would love it to like expand huge and, and really just be the first thing anybody thinks of when it comes to divorce. So you might eventually be the person in front of the camera now. I might eventually be the person in front of the camera, but that's a subject matter that I'm so comfortable with and, and know that I have so much value to add in that realm that I'm very comfortable with it. Yeah. Well, I think it's going to take off. I mean, you obviously have the background to know how to get it off the ground. We're trying. And so does your partner. So anyway, background also huge. I could ask you a million more questions. Maybe we could do this again sometime, but thank you so much for giving me your time and sharing your stories with me. I love it. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Of course. I'm going to see you again. Yes, definitely. Thanks for seeing me. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.